Section number 44 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rowan Pattergill. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 14, Part 1. Chapter 14. The Widening Circle. Maggie's people, the Schofields, lived in the large gardener's cottage that was half a farm behind Belcote Hall. The hall was too damp to live in, so the Schofields were caretakers, gamekeepers, farmers, all in one. The father was gamekeeper and stockbreeder, the eldest son was market gardener, using the big hall gardens, the second son was farmer and gardener. There was a large family as at Cossethay. Ursula loved to stay at Belcote, to be treated as a grand lady by Maggie's brothers. They were good-looking men, the eldest was twenty-six years old. He was the gardener, a man not very tall, but strong and well-made, with brown, sunny, easy eyes and a face handsomely hewn, brown with a long, fair moustache which he pulled as he talked to Ursula. The girl was excited because these men attended to her when she came near. She could make their eyes light up and quiver. She could make Antony, the eldest, twist and twist his moustache. She knew she could move them almost at will with her light laughter and chatter. They loved her ideas, watched her as she talked vehemently about politics or economics, and she, while she talked, saw the golden-brown eyes of Antony gleam like the eyes of a satyr as they watched her. He did not listen to her words. He listened to her. It excited her. He was like a fawn, pleased when she would go with him over his hothouses to look at the green and pretty plants, at the pink primulas nodding among their leaves, and scenarios flaunting purple and crimson and white. She asked about everything, and he told her very exactly and minutely in a queer pedantic way that made her want to laugh, yet she was really interested in what he did, and he had the curious light in his face, like the light in the eyes of the goat that was tethered by the farmyard gate. She went down with him into the warmish cellar, where already in the darkness the little yellow knobs of rhubarb were coming. He held the lantern down to the dark earth. She saw the tiny knob-end of the rhubarb thrusting upwards upon the thick red stem, thrusting itself like a knob of flame through the soft soil. His face was turned up to her. The light glittered on his eyes and his teeth as he laughed, a faint musical neigh. He looked handsome, and she heard a new sound in her ears, the faintly musical neighing laugh of Antony, whose moustache twisted up and whose eyes were luminous with the cold, steady, arrogant, laughing glare. There seemed a little prance of triumph in his movement. She could not rid herself of a movement of acquiescence, a touch of acceptance. Yet he was so humble, his voice was so caressing, he held his hand for her to step on when she must climb a wall, and she stepped on the living firmness of him that quivered firmly under her weight. She was aware of him as if in a mesmeric state. In her ordinary sense, she had nothing to do with him, but the peculiar ease and unnoticeableness of his entering the house, the power of his cold, gleaming light on her when he looked at her, was like a bewitchment. In his eyes, as in the pale grey eyes of a goat, there seemed some of that steady, hard fire of moonlight which has nothing to do with the day. It made her alert, and yet her mind went out like an extinguished thing. She was all senses, all her senses were alive. Then she saw him on Sunday, dressed up in his Sunday clothes, trying to impress her, and he looked ridiculous. 
she clung to the ridiculous effect of his stiff Sunday clothes. She was always conscious of some unfaithfulness to Maggie on Antony's score. Poor Maggie stood apart as if betrayed. Maggie and Antony were enemies by instinct. Ursula had to go back to her friend, brimming with affection and a poignancy of pity, which Maggie received with a little stiffness. Then poetry and books and learning took the place of Antony with his goat's movements and his cold, gleaming humour. While Ursula was at Bulcote, the snow fell. In the morning, a covering of snow weighed on the rhododendron bushes. "'Shall we go out?' said Maggie. She had lost some of her leader's sureness and was now tentative, a little in reserve from her friend. They took the key of the gate and wandered into the park. It was a white world on which dark trees and tree masses stood under a sky keen with frost. The two girls went past the hall that was shuttered and silent, their footprints marking the snow on the drive. Down the park, a long way off, a man was carrying armfuls of hay across the snow. He was a small dark figure like an animal moving in its unawareness. Ursula and Maggie went on exploring down a tinkling, chilly brook that had worn the snow away in little scoops and ran dark between. They saw a robin glance its bright eyes and burst scarlet and grey into the hedge, then some pertly marked blue tits scuffled. Meanwhile, the brook slid on coldly chuckling to itself. The girls wandered across the snowy grass to where the artificial fish ponds lay under thin ice. There was a big tree with a thick trunk twisted with ivy that hung almost horizontal over the ponds. Ursula climbed joyfully into this and sat amidst bosses of bright ivy and dull berries. Some ivy leaves were like green spears held out and tipped with snow. The ice was seen beneath them. Maggie took out a book and, sitting lower down the trunk, began to read Coleridge's Christabel. Ursula half-listened. She was wildly thrilled. Then she saw Antony coming across the snow with his confident, slightly strutting stride. His face looked brown and hard against the snow, smiling with a sort of tense confidence. Hello, she called to him. A response went over his face. His head was lifted in an answering, jerking gesture. Hello, he said. You're like a bird in there. And Ursula's laugh rang out. She answered to the peculiar reedy twang in his penetrating voice. She did not think of Antony, yet she lived in a sort of connection with him, in his world. One evening she met him as she was coming down the lane, and they walked side by side. "'I think it's so lovely here,' she cried. "'Do you?' he said. "'I'm glad you like it.' There was a curious confidence in his voice. "'Oh, I love it. What more does one want than to live in this beautiful place, and make things grow in your garden? It is like the Garden of Eden.' Is it? he said with a little laugh. Yes, well, it's not so bad. He was hesitating. The pale gleam was strong in his eyes. He was looking at her steadily, watching her, as an animal might. Something leaped in her soul. She knew he was going to suggest to her that she should be as he was. Would you like to stay here with me? he asked tentatively. She blenched with fear, and with the intense sensation of proffered license suggested to her. They had come to the gate. How? she asked. You aren't alone here. We could marry, he answered in the strange, coldly gleaming, insinuating tone that chilled the sunshine into moonlight. All substantial things seemed transformed. Shadows and dancing moonlight were real, and all cold, inhuman, gleaming sensations. She realized with something like terror that she was going to accept this. 
She was going inevitably to accept him. His hand was reaching out to the gate before them. She stood still. His flesh was hard and brown and final. She seemed to be in the grip of some insult. I couldn't, she answered involuntarily. He gave the same brief, neighing little laugh, very sad and bitter now, and slotted back the bar of the gate, yet he did not open. For a moment they both stood looking at the fire of sunset that quivered among the purple twigs of the trees. She saw his brown, hard, well-hewn face gleaming with anger and humiliation and submission. He was an animal that knows that it is subdued. Her heart flamed with the sensation of him, of the fascinating thing that he offered her, and with sorrow, and with an inconsolable sense of loneliness. Her soul was an infant crying in the night. He had no soul. Oh, and why had she? He was the cleaner. She turned away. She turned round from him and saw the east flush strangely rose, the moon coming yellow and lovely upon a rosy sky above the darkening bluish snow, all this so beautiful, all this so lovely. He did not see it, he was one with it. But she saw it and was one with it. Her seeing separated them infinitely. They went on in silence down the path, following their different fates. The trees grew darker and darker. The snow made only a dimness in an unreal world. And like a shadow, the day had gone into a faintly luminous snowy evening while she was talking aimlessly to him to keep him at a distance, yet to keep him near her, and he walked heavily. He opened the garden gate for her quietly, and she was entering into her own pleasances, leaving him outside the gate. Then even whilst she was escaping or trying to escape, this feeling of pain came. Maggie the next day saying, I wouldn't make Antony love you, Ursula. If you don't want him, it is not nice. But Maggie, I never made him love me, cried Ursula, dismayed and suffering, and feeling as if she had done something base. She liked Antony, though. All her life, at intervals, she returned to the thought of him, and of that which he offered. But she was a traveller. She was a traveller on the face of the earth, and he was an isolated creature, living in the fulfilment of his own senses. She could not help it that she was a traveller. She knew, Antony, that he was not one. But, oh, ultimately and finally, she must go on and on, seeking the goal that she knew she did draw nearer to. She was wearing away her second and last cycle at St. Philip's. As the months went, she ticked them off. First October, then November, December, January. She was careful always to subtract a month from the remainder for the summer holidays. She saw herself travelling round a circle, only the arc of which remained complete. Then she was in the open, like a bird tossed into mid-air, a bird that had learned in some measure to fly. There was college ahead. That was her mid-air, unknown, spacious. Come college, and she would have broken from the confines of all the life she had known. For her father was also going to move. They were all going to leave Cossethay. Brangwen had kept his carelessness about his circumstances. He knew his work in the lace designing meant little to him personally. He just earned his wage by it. He did not know what meant much to him. Living close to Anna Brangwen, 
His mind was always suffused through with physical heat. He moved from instinct to instinct, groping, always groping on. When it was suggested to him that he might apply for one of the posts as handwork instructor, posts about to be created by the Nottingham Education Committee, it was as if a space had been given to him in which he could remove from his hot, dusky enclosure. He sent in his application confidently, expectantly. He had a sort of belief in his supernatural fate. The inevitable weariness of his daily work had stiffened some of his muscles and made a slight deadness in his ruddy, alert face. Now he might escape. He was full of new possibilities and his wife was acquiescent. She was willing now to have a change. She too was tired of Cossethay. The house was too small for the growing children and since she was nearly forty years old, she began to come awake from her sleep of motherhood. Her energy moved more outwards. The din of growing lives roused her from her apathy. She, too, must have her hand in making life. She was quite ready to move, taking all her brood. It would be better now if she transplanted them, for she had borne her last child. It would be growing up. So that in her easy, unused fashion, she talked plans and arrangements with her husband, indifferent really as to the method of the change, since a change was coming. Even if it did not come this way, it would come in another. The house was full of ferment. Ursula was wild with excitement. At last her father was going to be something socially. So long he had been a social cipher without form or standing. Now he was going to be art and handwork instructor for the county of Nottingham. That was really a status. It was a position. He would be a specialist in his way, and he was an uncommon man. Ursula felt they were all getting a foothold at last. He was coming to his own. Who else that she knew could turn out from his own fingers the beautiful things her father could produce? She felt he was certain of this new job. They would move. They would leave this cottage at Cossethay, which had grown too small for them. They would leave Cossethay, where the children had all been born, and where they were always kept to the same measure. For the people who had known them as children, along with the other village boys and girls, would never, could never understand that they should grow up different. They had held Ertla Brangwen, one of themselves, and had given her her place in the native village, as in a family, and the bond was strong. But now, when she was growing to something beyond what Cossethay would allow or understand, the bond between her and her old associates was becoming a bondage. Hello, Ursula. How are you going on? They said when they met her, and it demanded of her in the old voice the old response, and something in her must respond and belong to the people who knew her, but something else denied bitterly. What was true of her ten years ago was not true now, and something else which she was, and must be, they could neither see nor allow. They felt it there nevertheless, something beyond them, and they were injured. They said she was proud and conceited, that she was too big for her shoes nowadays. They said she needn't pretend because they knew what she was. They had known her since she was born. They quoted this and that about her, and she was ashamed because she did feel different from the people she had lived amongst. It hurt her that she could not be at her ease with them any more, and yet, and yet, one's kite will rise on the wind as far as ever one has string to let it go. It tugs and tugs and will go, and one is glad the further it goes, even if everybody else is nasty about it. 
So Kosathe hampered her, and she wanted to go away, to be free to fly her kite as high as she liked. She wanted to go away, to be free to stand straight up to her own height. So that when she knew that her father had the new post and that the family would move, she felt like skipping on the face of the earth and making psalms of joy. The old bound shell of Kosathe was to be cast off and she was to dance away into the blue air. She wanted to dance and sing. She made dreams of the new place she would live in, where stately, cultured people of high feeling would be friends with her and she would live with the noble in the land, moving to a large freedom of feeling. She dreamed of a rich, proud, simple girlfriend who had never known Mr. Harby and his like, nor ever had a note in her voice of bondage, contempt and fear as Maggie had. And she gave herself to all that she loved in Kosathe passionately because she was going away now. She wandered about to her favourite spots. There was a place where she went trespassing to find the snowdrops that grew wild. It was evening and the winter-darkened meadows were full of mystery. When she came to the woods, an oak tree that had been newly chopped down in the dell, pale drops of flowers glimmered many under the hazels and by the sharp golden splinters of wood that were splashed about and the grey-green blades of snowdrop leaves pricked unheeding, the drooping still little flowers were without heed. Ursula picked some lovingly in an ecstasy. The golden chips of wood shone yellow like sunlight. The snowdrops in the twilight were like the first stars of night, and she alone amongst them was wildly happy to have found her way into such a glimmering dusk to the intimate little flowers and the splash of wood chips like sunshine over the twilight of the ground. She sat down on the felled tree and remained a while remote. Going home, she left the purplish dark of the trees for the open lane, where the puddles shone long and jewel-like in the ruts. The land about her was darkened, and the sky a jewel overhead. Oh, how amazing it was to her! It was almost too much. She wanted to run and sing and cry out for very wildness and poignancy, but she could not run and sing and cry out in such a way as to cry out the deep things in her heart. So she was still, and almost sad with loneliness. End of section 44